Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, with a cold this week, unfortunately. But more excitingly than that, I'm here with returning guest host James Ewan and regular co-host Pete Wall. Gentlemen, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Yeah, no complaints. And thankfully, uh, I've not caught the cold yet. So, yeah, all good. Not yet, James. Not yet. You're sat right next to me. So within the next hour, you may end up with this cold, which will be a special treat for you. And you'll probably never come back on the show. So my apologies. But Pete, you're right. Yeah, we really make people feel welcome on this podcast. <laughs> I feel quite lucky then to be protected by some distance over a Skype call on my end. But yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you very much. And uh, looking forward to another good show um, today. We've got loads to cover, but the feature for today, um, I've dressed appropriately with a NASA top, is of course Ad Astra, the big film of this week on wide release. Before we get to that feature, and a little bonus for listeners this week, a top five on Brand. Brad Pitt himself and the best performances and movies that he's been involved in, we're going to get into the regular first section of the show, which is, of course, in the foyer. This is where we talk about film news, anything far and wide from the world of film. Paul, what is going on in film this week as far as you're concerned, sir? Well... I spotted an article that makes me think that some of the film studios think their audiences are stupid. And this is the fact that they have announced this week that Jurassic World 3 will reunite the original cast of the first Jurassic Park film. So not only will Jeff Goblin be back for a good 40 seconds of screen time like he was in Fallen Kingdom, but Sam Neill and Laura Dern will probably have a combined three minutes between them. Um, Which probably gets you to the kind of gist of what I'm thinking about this one. This feels to me like an incredibly cynical way to draw up interest for a sequel that people aren't that interested in. Because as far as I'm concerned, Fallen Kingdom was awful and I've got very little interest in what happens next with that franchise. Who, who's who got number three, Paul? Who's directing? Uh, the... Colin Trevorrow. Of course. Yeah, you mentioned it previously on the show, right? Yeah. And the last one was J.A. Bayona, right? The Fallen Kingdom, yeah. Yeah, which, Fallen Kingdom, yeah. Which I know took an absolute pounding from many quarters um, in terms of film film critics, but uh, I, fe- I tentatively could defend a couple of parts of it, I reckon, but but for the most part, not really. So, yeah, uh, cynical cash grab. Although three minutes of Laura Dern is better than no minutes of Laura Dern, as far as I'm concerned. That's true. Um, Don't get me wrong. Like, I, I love Sam Neill. I love Laura Dern. I lo- I'd love to see those characters back. But alongside, you're not telling me that they're really going to have a major role alongside Chris Pratt. Like, I just can't, no. I just can't see where they're going to fit in and have anything, anything meaningful to add to the plot, really, to be honest. And if you look at how they treated um, Ian Malcolm's character in Fallen Kingdom, he yeah. was literally in it for the time you saw him in the trailer. So yeah, completely wasted. And yeah, and I can see this being the, the case again. Free phone in performances for yeah. <laughs> quite a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so between the three of the three of us, is there any enthusiasm at all for Jurassic World three? I mean, from what I saw, I think we talked about the short film last week that's just come out, Battle at Big Gulch or Battle at something. The, Big Rock? The, Battle at Big Rock, that's the one. Uh, and I enjoyed that more than I've enjoyed the other two Jurassic World films, if I'm honest. But the, 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 my biggest problem with, with Fallen Kingdom, Pete, it's interesting you say you were going to defend it, is the fact that I thought in parts it was actually really well directed um, mm. and there was there's definitely technical ability there. It's just the story was trash. It just yeah. made no sense whatsoever. It? And it was it was my problem is with... 
Trevorrow's writing more than anything else. So that's Wasn't why I'm concerned. Wasn't it the movie, Paul, with the Toby Jones uh, dinosaur auction? Yes. Yeah, yeah, a particular yeah. highlight. Where they just, just aux- they auctioned off dinosaurs to racial stereotypes. <laughs> right. Um, do we have any... When's this thing landing? Is it a 2020 release? I think it's 2021. I may be wrong there. Oh, I think wow. it's 2021 they're aiming for. So oh, okay. It might, well, it might be all... wrong. It might be appearing next year. But Yeah, we can all forget about it for a good while then before we have to, to deal with picking that thing apart. Um, talking of picking things apart, this week there has been... Or there have been various stories surrounding the upcoming release of Joker, the new uh, sort of Joker origin story movie starring Joaquin Phoenix. Not least the fact that the um, Telegraph's Robbie Collin did an sit-down interview with Joaquin Phoenix where he asked a question about the possibility of the movie um, having an influence on violent individuals in the real world, to which Joaquin Phoenix responded by walking out of the interview furiously storming out as headline writers would have you believe. Um, And so from this, uh, well, not from that interview, I suppose, but from that movie, a lot of um, debate in both directions has been thrown around in terms of whether it's fair to challenge a film like this with the uh, potential that it could negatively impact society, um, IRL thoughts guys i mean we don't need to get into a whole you know our violent video games and movies making our kids into psychopaths i just mean i I guess more so where are we at with thinking about expectations for joker and whether you think it's necessary and whether you're interested in what Joaquin phoenix and his cohorts have to say about this particular character well in fairness to Joaquin phoenix i think he's had a bit of a reputation in interviews i don't think this is a first is it didn't he go on one of the late night American chat shows in character and gone back a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I know that's a a sideline story. I don't know. This is like, this has been such a long debate is do violent films inspire people to carry out copycat murders? There's no fundamental proof at this point. Yeah. That's the thing. So yeah, we've, there's no proof. They, they tried that going back years, decades ago with, the uproar about a clockwork orange that obviously Kubrick had to withdraw the the film from UK distribution I think it's just something that's been tried and tested so many times this ongoing debate part of me kind of thinks as a filmmaker they do have some responsibility to to answer the questions of why they're sort of depicting violence on screen but I don't know it's just the same old kind of news headlines isn't it really yeah I mean I mean, of course, this is this is something that came up with the Dark Knight trilogy, Chris Nolan's Dark Knight, Dark Knight trilogy, particularly over the Aurora uh, cinema shooting that happened, wherein the shooter declared himself to be the Joker. Now, as a result of the release of this latest instalment in the Batman universe, um, the, the new Joker movie, that theatre won't be showing Joker, um, which to me seems an entirely unsurprising move, although some corners of Twitter um, seem to be up in arms about that decision, uh, let alone any of the other controversy. Um, Yeah, where are you with this, Paul? I mean, obviously, I think James has got a point that it's hard to show any direct correlation. But at the same time, 
is it okay then just to say that anybody who has a problem with the movie is being oversensitive and a snowflake? No, not not necessarily. I mean, you know, this the, the question is undoubtedly meant as clickbait for a newspaper that I would wouldn't wipe my ass with, in all honesty. So I'm t- I'm inclined to side with Joaquin Phoenix on this one. It's a pretty lazy question from what from someone who's supposed to be an experienced film journalist. So, I like Robbie like, Collins, so let's go a little bit easy. Okay, about you know, Robbie Collins is not that newspaper. He's a film critic that I quite okay. like. Okay, good. He still chooses to write for the Telegraph, so fair enough. Um, yeah, you, you, you've how, got to get a check, uh, then, man. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. And I, I, I haven't disliked some of the stuff he's written, in fairness. But for me, it feels like a very lazy question, and like it's almost too an easier question to ask. Now, I, my question would be then: Fine, if you're going to level this at Joker, that's fine. But why isn't this same criticism being leveled at Hustlers, for example? Like we talked about this last week about the moral ambiguity of some of the characters in Hustlers. That seems to be being sort of that's. That's been put up on a, on a massive pedestal for being like an impressive, an impressive work of representation and that kind of thing. But ultimately, those characters are hailed as kind of anti-heroes without a shadow of a doubt, and no one's really questioned. No one's really stood up and questioned. Oh, isn't this promoting women? To, is isn't this film surely then promoting women to go out and drug men and steal their money? Like, yeah, yeah. If you're no, going to level that at Joker, you should level it at Hustlers. I'm not saying I agree with I, it, but I agree with that point entirely and it's something that came up when we did the review of hustlers isn't it but um i guess my response to that would be yeah but then that like neither one of those things makes the other one any better right just saying like oh absolutely you know if people are lauding hustlers and not thinking about the the sort of moral ambiguity of that movie then that's on them but it doesn't mean that i'm necessarily going to be you know banging the drum for just like freedom of speech to the nth degree so that the joker movie can be as sort of sadistic and violent as it needs to be without you know any kickback having said all of that we're turning into those people that i really loathe which are the people who are discussing a movie that none of us have actually seen this is is what i was going to come to next the difficulty is none of us have seen it Um, yeah. If you want my response on the basis of should he walked out of the interview, it's, it's difficult to tell. I think it's a lazy bit of film journalism and I don't think it's a question he should have been asked. Um, because yeah. It, yeah, that's where I stand on, on whether he should have walked out or not. Anything else, as you say, we haven't seen the film yet, so it's difficult to tell. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else to jam into this section before we move on? There was something, James, you had something on The Irishman, I think. Yeah, so I've been really excited about The Irishman for... For some time now, as soon as I heard that it was, they were planning to make it into a, a film. Obviously, it's uh, Scorsese and De Niro back again. A long time, their first collaboration since Casino. And from what I gathered, the film was going to be released in November. There was rumour that it was going to be shown in selected cinemas. And it was going to be distributed on, obviously, Netflix, who'd funded and, and distributed the film. But I found out pretty much by accident last week that a couple of local cinemas are actually showing The Irishman prior to the release date in November. So it's gone wider then than normal. Because Netflix yeah. has done some um, limited theatrical releases before, but they've been, we've talked about this I think a couple of times before now, where they've been so limited it's almost impossible to see it. But if it's gone wider, then that's great. Yeah, so they're yeah. showing, they're doing a premiere of The Irishman, which I think coincides with the, the London screening. So they're doing like a live stream from uh, one of the London cinemas. And um, yeah, it's on October the 13th, quarter to seven start time, um, but three and a half hour film in duration. Where's so. local to you, sorry for listening? So Bristol, so it's definitely, it's Bristol, isn't it? Yeah, she was yeah. showing in, as far as I know at the moment, two Bristol cinemas, 
which is the watershed and the everyman cinema white ladies so and, presumably uh, that means it will be hitting like manchester and london and and bigger thought so, yeah. cities in the uk and this yeah, we should say is is far in advance of the netflix release which is currently i believe slated for november 27th so it's sort of like six weeks in advance which is cool actually i think that there's that window of opportunity for people to see it on a big screen before you know everybody you know has already you know seen it on netflix yeah and i, w- I was slightly surprised because i'd not seen this this advertised i'd not heard any anything at all that they were going to release you know do this screening in october so i'd literally got home one saturday night wanted to check out some trailers and stuff some more info on the irishman and all of a sudden it says cinema listed in bristol and i was I was pretty surprised, i nice. got to be honest. Nice. A pleasant surprise, yeah. Good. So tickets all booked Well, if you do get to 13th. see it before us and you come on the show to talk about it, you can't talk about it until it's next Netflix release in November. So there's no point you going okay. to see it, James, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that <laughs> stay, does place... Stay quiet. Yeah. Paul, that does place us in an awkward position where we're kind of now under pressure to have seen yeah. the movie by mid-October <laughs> yeah. so that we can review it here. Having said that, I'm sure most of the audience won't catch up with the movie until late November. So... Uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes with The Irishman. But obviously, come what may, we will be reviewing it on the podcast. Um, that then brings us to the end of the In the Foyer section for today, which means we'll take a little b- break and we'll be back right after the break with the section of the show that we know as Popcorn Movies right after this. So yes, um, popcorn movies. So this is the section of the show, for those who don't know, is where we talk about any and everything that we've watched this week in the world of film. So we try and keep the reviews brief, so it'll be a brief summary of what we thought of a film, really. So uh, I'm going to go first, because I started talking. Um, and that the first film I want to talk about this week, I've started the big Star Wars rewatch in advance of Episode Nine coming out in December. So I've started this morning with everyone's favourite Star Wars film, Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Um... I say everyone's favourite start anyway. That's I'm not going to explain sarcasm. I shouldn't need to do it. Um, so, where I stand on this now, I think I must. I've, I've seen this film far too many times for my own good, to be honest. Um, yeah, the once pod race is, once is probably too many times for your once, own good. To be to totally be fair, honest. yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. It doesn't hold up particularly well. Um, the special effects are, haven't aged well. Jar Jar Binks is still massively irritating. Uh, the pod race holds up just about as a as kind of a big big budget popcorn entertainment. And the lightsaber jewel is still, I think, one of the best in the series. And I'm, I'm glad the film ends on a high, uh, to be honest, because I kind of was half dozing through the rest of it. It's just, it's just dull. Just it just forgets what makes what's. It's just like he he took so much time off of Star Wars. He forgot how to make a good Star Wars film. He forgot to bring the fun, and sort of any liveliness to it. It was just very very flat. Um, and you know, the opening crawl talks about it's Star. It starts it's Star Wars, and this this film starts off being about a trade dispute. It's just like, come on. Like, is that really the best you can do? Like, yeah, it's yeah. It every every once in a while, I'm just, I'll give it another chance, and maybe it'll catch me in a better mood. And it's never caught me in a better mood, and that's because it's not very good. Yeah, um, stop doing it to yourself, yeah. man. Yeah, it's like yeah. self harm. Stop rewatching it. Yeah. Yeah. it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, James, what have you watched this week? Yeah, so a little bit of an Irishman connection. Um, read an article this week where Mickey Rourke claimed that he was offered a role in the film, The Irishman, and claimed that he didn't get the part because him and Robert De Niro have had a long-running feud for years that dates back to a film they made in the late 80s called Angel Heart. So I went back and watched that film. I'd not seen it for 
10, 15 years. Really good Alan Parker film. Um, basically, De Niro plays <coughs> a guy called Lewis Cipher, who hires a, a private eye, played by Mickey Rourke, to try and find a jazz musician who's gone missing. And basically, there's all sort of twists and turns. It's based on a really good book called Fallen Angel. And it's a really good film, really well written. Don't and very it, well. for my sins. I've never seen Angel Heart as of yet, so it's I need good. to catch up with it. Worth a you watch. See, you see, and I, this is this is James, where I can tell that we're very different people because you've managed to do a potted review of Angel Heart without mentioning the chicken slicing blood oh, through the floorboards fucking section of that <laughs> yes. movie, which is one of those bits of. Okay, a film. now I'm in. Now I'm going to see it. <laughs> now you're going to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's one of those bits of a movie that you know we've all got these sort of formative experiences, I guess, where I just remember sort of experiencing it somewhere in the pit of my stomach when I was like too <laughs> young to fully comprehend what was going on, but felt I'd been changed forever by that movie. So, yeah, I, I'm keen to go back to it now that you've reminded me that that's a the film young, that exists. The young actress from The Cosby Show. Was it Lisa Bonet? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's a throwback. Yeah. But yeah, a really good film and um, made by a British filmmaker who I think is a little bit underrated, Alan Parker, who I think, i got a feeling he gave up filmmaking and is now an artist. Okay. Yeah. Well, fair enough. But yeah, re- really good film worth a... Uh, worth seeing nice i will see it yeah it's been on my list for ages just one of those ones that just keeps passing me by for some reason so yeah that'll go on my list of things to do next week when i've got very little else to do which will be nice so yeah i'll tee that one up pete what about yourself uh so first for me this week, I have got Sword of Trust. This is the latest from Lynn Shelton, a female director who came to directing a little bit later in life, inspired by Claire Denis. Apparently she went to see Claire Denis do a talk and Claire Denis mentioned that she had not made her first film until she was over 40. And so Shelton decided that it wasn't too late for her either, being that she was in sort of her later 30s at the time. You know, there's hope there for us all. Uh, and she went on to make films like Hump Day, Your Sister's Sister and Touchy with Rosemary DeWitt. Uh, I like her movies quite a bit. Um, They're usually kind of understated character study movies, lots of people, basically with a central theme, which is somewhat relevant, and then people have conversations. That's what Lynn Shelton movies are like. Fair enough. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this one, Sort of Trust, is um, a movie that sort of orbits around the idea that Gillian Bell, her character, uh, that you'll know from Workaholics, and Michaela Watkins' character find... uh, Excuse me, Gillian Bell inherits a sword from her deceased great-grandmother, I believe, that uh, in the letters and documents that are left with this sword, um, it's revealed in his own rather scattered uh, writings that the sword is proof that the South won the American Civil War. Um, so <laughs> I like this. I like this concept a lot. <laughs> Michaela Watkins and Gillian Bell's characters they take the sword to the local pawn shop owner, played by Mark Marin, that people will know as being sort of the godfather of podcasting, but also star of and writer of and director of the show Marin. Um, and he it gives them an initial valuation of like a few hundred dollars, sends them away. They don't take it, and they realise that what they have is something that could be really valuable. Although the people that it's going to be valuable to are going to be 
quite nasty uh, members of society uh, who basically want to prove that the South won the American Civil War. Uh, it's quite funny. It's quite warm. The Civil War stuff, like I say, is there, but it's not front and centre, really. You don't even need to have a particular knowledge of that historical context to enjoy the movie. And I would say the biggest recommendation for this thing, um, apart from all the you know leads giving good performances, is that Mark Maron, I don't think has been this good. Um, you know, he's been in various things uh, like indie um Stuff like Love, the Chicago and Glow, yeah. uh, series, and, and yeah, his own show, obviously, and Glow, of course, yeah. But I think here he's got this really like lived in, very like Mark Maron-y, Mark Maron performance. You know, he's <laughs> he's into classic rock as he actually is. He's into old artifacts as he is. But I just think that they've given him maybe uh, the pinnacle role that he's got up until this point okay. so yeah uh, sort of trust is good it's a small movie it's not gonna you know change your life but um if you like lynn shelton or if you've seen any of her other stuff i would recommend it paul what else uh, so i watched uh, the only other film i've managed to squeeze in this week was uh, the between two ferns the movie uh, which has just come out on netflix uh, this is written and directed by Zach Galifianakis and is basically a movie version of Between Two Ferns, which I imagine everyone's probably seen on YouTube at some point. Uh, Funny or Die thing, which I think was originally, yeah, which I think Will Ferrell had some involvement in or whether they've just made that up for the film. Yeah, um, Will, Will Ferrell, but, yes. I, he, he founded Funny or, co-founded Funny or Die. So, so we, okay, so that, yeah, so that's fine. So Will Ferrell appears in this kind of as a, as a caricature of himself or maybe himself, I'm not too sure. Um yeah, as you might expect, the it's the interview elements that basically, for those not familiar with Between Two Ferns, um, Zach Galifianakis gets celebrities on and they do mock interviews where Zach Galifianakis is just an offensive prick to them uh, and they respond. And the if you haven't seen it, it's well worth a watch. Um, and as you'd imagine, the, the the interviews here are definitely the highlight. You're sitting there, well, how, they, how do they make that into a movie? The answer is they don't do a particularly good job of making it into a movie, if I'm entirely honest. The interviews are definitely the highlight. The interviews are very, very funny. The Matthew McConaughey one is great. Um, uh, Keanu Reeves turns up in this. The John ha the outtakes with John Hamm at the end are probably some of the funniest stuff I've seen for ages. Um, where it struggles, though, is them trying to force a narrative into this mix. And that just doesn't... It's not particularly engaging. It's not anywhere near as funny as the interviews and doesn't work too well for me. That being said, there's a lot worse ways you could spend an hour and 22 minutes of your time than watching Zach Galifianakis make a bell end of himself because uh, he's very good at it. So, uh, yeah, in, enough to like. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's what you'd expect from a YouTube from a YouTube skit turned into a film, really. So, yeah. Yeah. I, You've seen this, Pete, I, haven't you? I have seen it, yeah. And I, I went in as a sort of a big fan of the, the thing already. Um, I've heard that Galifianakis and Scott Ockerman, the director of this thing, said that they a lot of it's improvised, which seemed like a great idea at the time and then became just an absolute nightmare <laughs> at certain points where yeah. they're trying to string a narrative together and they go on a road trip yeah. and it's the whole thing. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think you've you've summed it up really well. I think that the, the interviews are good. I think the outtakes at the end are amazing. But when you're saying that yeah. the outtakes <laughs> are like maybe the best part of the movie, that probably doesn't doesn't reflect too well on the movie as a, as a whole. Um, but yeah, I, there's some good performances in there. Well, in terms of the people who aren't just being interviewed like uh, Lauren Lapkus and so on. But Phil Hendry's in there is a guy I love. But um, yeah, it, it's totally worth, like you say, the time. It's just not an incredible work of, of sort of actual um, sort of fiction. Uh, I've got one more, which I don't think is a great work of fiction either, to be 
perfectly honest. Uh, this is the film The Kitchen that we previewed on the show from a director called Andrea Berloff. Oh, this is picking up some bad, bad reviews. Is, is it deserving of these? Well, uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, <laughs> it, this is uh, she's a first-time director, a writer on Sleepless, Straight Outta Compton, World Trade Center. Uh, might be a warning. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the, the reason why it seemed promising is because of this trio of actresses at the center, Melissa McCarthy, mm. Elizabeth Moss, Tiffany Haddish, people that we like very much, that we've talked about a great deal on the show. Um, And what you get is this uh, Widows-esque crime caper where you've got a group of women who are basically all in various ways fucked over by their husbands um, treated badly in terms of domestic abuse or uh, like just being absent or just being you know neglectful and negligent Uh, their husbands are all then taken off to prison because of a bungled uh, robbery and the women are left to decide how on earth or figure out how on earth they're going to get by without the income they were relying on from their respective husbands so so it's very much like widows then <laughs> yes it is so uh they are given a sort of stipend by the local crime boss and it is a pitiful amount of money and he's sort of got them under the thumb so they decide no we're going to take a different route we're going to start our own protection racket uh, this is the 1970s i should say they're going to start their own protection racket and they're going to try to take control of hell's kitchen the area of new york sort of notorious for for crime and uh, malfeasance and stuff um it's not very good it's edited together in a sort of <laughs> choppy way it's a lot of montages the come up in terms of the group becoming this crime savvy you know power trio is so brief that like it's hard to really feel like you've gone on a tangible arc with them so when you get to the rest of the movie which is all sort of like trying to deal with the fallout of the way in which they're going to be counterpunched by the powers that be you don't feel that invested i would say what is cool about this movie um i like those three people elizabeth moss in particular has fun when she turns and just becomes psychotic she has a lot of fun doing that uh but she is egged on by the character played by donald gleason and if you're in any way a fan of donald gleason i recommend the movie for just that alone because he is this like wild-eyed uh yeah just just psychopath who enjoys telling people exactly the incision points that you make with a knife when you're trying to dismember a human body stuff like that so that stuff's good um other than that it all feels fairly standard and you know what paul what really tells you that this is all fairly standard is when you see oh look it's common and what's he playing he's playing a cop in new york i feel like i reviewed a movie like two (laughs) weeks ago where common was a cop in new york so yeah it's (laughs) it's a lot less than the sum of its parts i would say okay. um disappointingly so um other well, thank you for watching it well. so i don't have to catch up with it so much appreciated yeah it's better paul it's better <laughs> paul than the film uh, hell's kitchen with angelina jolie from the mid 90s but that's about the biggest recommendation i can give you other okay. than the gleason stuff um yeah fair enough any more for any more no all good i think oh it's all good yeah, same here. So that then brings us to the end of Popcorn Movies, which means that we'll be back in just a moment with the next section of the show that we always refer to as Coming Attractions, right after this. So 
So yeah, coming attractions to the section of the show where Pete uh, has done all the hard work and all the research of what's coming out, throws us some um, films, uh, and we decide whether we're excited about them or not. Uh, so Pete, back over to you, sir. Well, the first one is perfect for that because it's actually a film that came out today and I've managed to see already, so I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm just going to ask you guys to talk about your expectations. This one is Ready or Not from a directing duo of Matt Bettinelli, uh, excuse me, Matt Bettinelli-Olpin, double-barreled, and Tyler Gillette, or Gillette. Uh, these guys have worked together collaratively on Southbound, on Devil's Due, and VHS, of course, that we've talked about on this podcast. Oh, okay. Um, this one is a movie starring Samara Weaving. You'll recognise the surname because she is the niece of Hugo Weaving from The Matrix and elsewhere. Also co-starring Adam Brody, Mark O'Brien, and a lovely little appearance from Andy McDowell. Um, basically the film revolves around a couple who are about to be wed and uh, Samara Weaving's character plays the, the newlywed wife. She's marrying into a massive amount of wealth, but this wealth comes with a catch. At 12 o'clock on the night that she enters this new family, she has to join all members of the family to play a game picked at random by some kind of trick puzzle box that pops out a card and tells everyone which game they're going to be playing. Could be checkers, could be chess, or could be something a lot more bloody and gory. Um, have you seen trailers and stuff for this? Do you have expectations? Are you excited? Do you care? I've seen the trailer for this a couple of times. and I did see it... Sunday night when I went to see Ad Astra and I got no interest in watching this whatsoever. I thought the trailer looked pretty uninteresting. It's to be honest, I'll be frank, it's really not my kind of film and it just looks like something so generic. Yeah, no for me. I had preview tickets to see this uh, and went to Pain and Glory instead. Um, so oh. I imagine that was probably the right decision to make. That being yeah. said... Um, yeah, that being said, this is the kind of thing that I that kind of does appeal to me. Like I would, I'd go in with low expectations, but it just looks like a silly horror, a silly gory horror that I will probably take some enjoyment from, even if it is a bit crappy. Yeah, as as Mark Hermode might say, this movie has an awful lot of pain until you get to the glory. Um, but yes, uh, I I, <laughs> I would be rather surprised, Paul, if you don't quite like it. I can't speak for James, uh, right, obviously, okay. from what he said, but yeah, I, I think you might quite like it. Uh, okay. Second, then, on the coming attractions list is The Goldfinch. This one releases on Friday. It's from director John Crowley, who's previously directed uh, Brooklyn, Closed Circuit, and Boy A. Um, stars Nicole Kidman and Ansel Elgort, alongside the likes of Jeffrey Wright, Luke Wilson, Sarah Paulson, and Finn Wolfhart, that everybody seems to be casting at this moment in time. Uh, this one tells the story of a 13-year-old boy who's taken in by a wealthy Upper East Side family after he survives a terrorist attack in an art museum that kills his mother. With his life in pieces, he clings on to a precious reminder of that fateful day. I don't want to say too much about the movie because I don't know if you guys know the sort of central conceit here. Um, are you hotly anticipating The Goldfinch? Uh, I'm intrigued to see this because this this is supposed to be one of the now worst, most loss-making films of all time it on is, its US yeah. release, I think. So um, anything that catastrophically bombs to that level, I'm intrigued to see. Yeah, I, I don't I, necessarily I really be, think that makes it a bad film. But, Paul, I would be careful um, saying catastrophically bombed when we're talking about a terrorist attack in an art museum. But yeah, I know totally you make a, what you You make a fair point. Okay, yeah, fair enough. I think you're, you're accurate there. You are accurate. 
Uh, yeah, well, okay, well, it, let's say it just hasn't done so well financially as it could have done. <laughs> nice. Leave it at that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, in, I'm intrigued to see this. I can't stand Ansel Elgort's face. I find him I just, I, I, he almost killed Baby Driver for me. I find him incredibly smug. I just, it's just an actor. Some actors just rub you up the wrong way. Like I wouldn't say he's an Eddie Redmayne for me, but he's he's probably he's probably not far off. Um, regular listeners of the show will know that I hate Eddie Redmayne with the force of a thousand suns. Um, so I'm sure he's a nice I'll, guy. Um, I'll, I'll um, agree with you. On that one. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, answer though, what doesn't? I, I don't know. I'm torn by this as it's lost so much money and is you know is sort of the, I, I will end up seeing it uh, for sure. Um, as to whether I'm excited about it, I don't know. Is the honest answer to that question? Yeah, James. I wouldn't say I'm excited, but I've got a feeling I'm going to give this a go. I've heard the novel is very, very good from all accounts. I've heard about the that the film made something like $4 million in its opening weekend in yeah. the States, and it looks like it's going to be one of the biggest financial losses for a, a film of all time. But anything with Nicole Kidman, I'm prepared to, to give a go because I've got a bit of a soft spot for Nicole I gotta be honest but that's maybe I shouldn't talk about that on the yeah, show but. No, I, but I I would I would sort of co-sign on that too and I kind of feel the same way about Sarah Paulson in so much as like anything that she's involved in it might not turn out to be anything you know worth too much but just an actress that I really admire and and Kidman seems to be making all these interesting movies at the moment I don't think all of them work but I think all of them are pushing her in different directions which is kind of interesting yeah absolutely um I should whip through these because I've noticed we're up to like half an hour already so uh another sort of on theme and I promise I won't comment on how you react to these this time but Hotel Mumbai uh, I say it's on theme because this one tells the true story of the Taj Hotel terrorist attack and siege in Mumbai in 2008 it starts De- it stars, I should say, Dev Patel, Army Hammer, and uh, Nazanin Buonaidi. Uh, any expectations here? This feels like a movie that came out a while ago, but it didn't, uh, I guess, at least in the UK. Uh, interested, you guys? It's a feature debut, I should say, from from director Anthony Morass. Uh, I, I did. I honestly, this one has caught me completely unawares. I didn't even know this was a. I didn't even know this was a thing. In Do you remember honesty. the story? Um, Do you remember the actual <clears throat> true story? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the event itself. It was. Um, it was yeah, it was horrible for want of a for want of a better description. Um, yeah, it, it, this could go either way when they do kind of recreations of recreations of events. It could be really good. I've I've got a lot of time for Dev Patel, especially after Lion, which I think is still one of I still think is a, is a superb film um, and quite underrated in all honesty. So um, yeah, I'll I'll give this a go. I I, I won't rush to this cinema to find it. I'll be honest. I'll probably wait for home release. But um, yeah, I wasn't aware it was out. So. Yeah, I'll probably give this one a go. It seems quite an interesting film. Um, agree with you. Good cast. I think you mentioned. The guy from is it Call Me by Your Name? Oh, I mean, Hammer, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's a a good up and coming prospect. Kind of agree with you a little bit about recreations of fictional interpretations of events in history. I think nine times out of ten they don't normally work. I I would rather see a documentary on the subject than a, yeah. a, a fictional. I think that's a fair comment. Account of, but that aside doesn't look that bad it does look interesting i might give it a go there was uh, a rosamund pike jamie bell a reconstruction of an actual real life siege 
that didn't work very well. And I can't remember the name of that movie, but uh, I mention it because the next film is uh, a film starring Jamie Bell uh, alongside Danielle McDonald, who is, of course, Paul Patty Cakes that we reviewed on this here show. Oh, yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> this one is called Skin um, from a director called Guy Navit, uh, Native, I should say. Uh, this is about a man raised by racist skinheads and notorious among white supremacists who turns his back on hatred and violence to transform his life with the help of a black activist and the woman he loves. Um, so sort of a turning your life around racial tension story, uh, Jamie Bell at the centre, uh, Jamie Bell with sort of weird facial tattoos on the artwork. Not sure about this. I have a funny feeling it might be not good. Any thoughts, guys? It's the kind of thing that could go south pretty quickly if it's if it's too heavy-handed. Um, however, I like Jeremy Bell a lot as an actor, so... Yeah. Yeah, you're not really selling it to me, but (laughs) yeah, I agree with Paul. I think Jamie Bell's pretty good. I quite enjoyed his performance, and the name of the film escapes me, that he did with um, Annette Benin. A couple oh, of years ago, uh, film, film stars, relate- don't, film stars die don't die in Liverpool. That yeah. movie, that movie made me cry. I talked about yeah. it on the show. It, it broke <laughs> yeah. me. That that film did. Yeah, that was a great performance from him. Though. Yeah, they yeah. they both were good. Really good pairing. So maybe the strength alone of that performance and some of his other work. Yeah, but yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. Like, I'm a massive fan of, of Jamie Bell. It just makes me sad when I get the impression that his upcoming release might not be particularly good. But it remains to be seen. We've got one more to squeeze in, and that's called Don't Let Go. This is from a director called Jacob Estes, who hasn't been too active on the film scene for a long time, but directed Mean Creek uh, back in the day. Um, this one deals with a um, man whose family dies in what appears to be a murder who then gets a phone call from his niece, a person that he understood was dead. Um, And then he's troubled by questions like, is she a ghost? Uh, Is she real? Has he gone mad? Uh, At the centre of this, we have uh, David Yellowo, um, Storm Reid, who was in A Wrinkle Wrinkle in Time, but we'll forgive her that. Um, We've got Byron Mann and we've got Alfred Molina. Any thoughts here about Don't Let Go? Early reviews seem middling. I love me and Creek, so I'm in. James? And with that cast as well, totally on board. Um, not really, probably. I'm not a massive fan of Alfred Melinga, to be honest, but I presume he's got just a kind of a bit part in this, has he? Or uh, I th- Yeah, he's a supporting role yeah. for sure. Uh, yeah, I'll probably give this one a miss. Need to see the trailer. Uh, I should I should stack these the other way. I should start with the ones that we're not going to be that excited about and ramp it up to something really exciting. Otherwise, you go out with a yeah, win for yeah, the end of the yeah, section. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, no, I'm psyched for this. I thought Mean Creek was great, and maybe his next film can be a documentary about what he's done in between Mean Creek and making this. Yeah, Brian Tyree Henry's in it as well, and he's been really good. Oh, there you like, go, Brian Tyree Henry's, Henry's awesome. And widows yeah. and stuff. So uh, yeah, 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 he's great. We will see, but the ones that are deserving of our time and attention will get reviews on this here show, and that oftentimes is many of them, because sometimes we just want to give things a good shoe-in. So, uh, and, you know, talking about, we're not going out with a whimper, we're coming back with a bang. In just a moment, we will be back to give a full and fulsome review of Ad Astra from director James Gray in the section of the show that we always call Feature Reviews, right after this. So yeah, Ad Astra, as you mentioned just before the break there, the latest film from James, director James Gray, who you may know from Lost City of Zed, which is his film before this one, uh, starring Brad Pitt, 
Tommy Lee Jones, Liv Tyler is in this, but it's, I would say it's rude to say it's starring Liv Tyler. Blink and you'll miss Liv Tyler in this one. Uh, Donald Sutherland is in this briefly. So the car, you know, it's a, it's a very starry cast. Ruth um, Negger Pete, as well. Before I try and set, and Ruth Negger's in this as well, who is great. And again, not much screen time, but I think really good, but we'll get to that. Uh, Pete, before I try and set up the film and do a really bad job of it, do you want to give it a go? <laughs> sure thing. Yeah. So um, yeah, you've done a good job of establishing James Gray. And then the story itself here in Ad Astra is involves an astronaut by the name of Roy McBride who undertakes a perilous mission across the solar system to try to uncover the truth about his father who's missing and as far as he knows presumed dead. Uh, the mission that led to his disappearance 30 years previous now threatens the entire universe as strange energy pulses collide with the planet. Um, we will have many, many things to say about this movie, which runs uh, fully two and a half hours. But before we get there, let's hear a little clip. Ray, how are you? Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. General. This is Lieutenant General Rivas, Director of U.S. Space Com Special Ops. Sir. Major. Adjutant General Vogel, Head Major. of Security. Ma'am. They flew all the way in from Virginia just last night just to see you. Well, thank you. Your uh, profile is certainly very impressive. You've done exceptionally well on all the assessment tests, basic combat, space training. We have something of a highly classified nature to show you. Major, what can you tell us about the Lima Project? First manned expedition to the outer solar system, sir? some 29 years ago yeah so i mean what what did we think you know this this has been mooted um in various circles as i think i've read some apocalypse now meets 2001 or the new 2001 or like it seems to be like some uh some reviews have gone absolutely bonkers for this film other people have been sort of i'd say more guarded with their criticism shall we say um so I mean, from from my perspective, I think like the the first thing I think to talk about is the fact that in terms of if you are going to compare it to two thousand and one, then there are some comparisons that I think are fair in the fact that two thousand and one looks beautiful, and I think Ad Astra looked beautiful. I think the a lot of the the quality of the set pieces I thought was great. The film I think looked fantastic for the most part, um, and I think that for me was was one of the high points of the film. James, you look like you disagree, but like <laughs> to be honest, like like get a little bit frustrated with film critics bringing out these comparisons between yeah, old films. It's, I know quite, it's quite lazy. It's an easy thing to do, and, mm. and we're all kind of guilty of doing it. But I think to put a film in the same bracket as Apocalypse Now, which we reviewed a few weeks ago, and compare it to probably Kubrick's greatest ever film, 2001, I think you're kind of digging yourself a bit of a grave. But they're, but they're, um, but they're thematic comparisons, aren't they? Rather than yeah, qualitative comparisons, um, right? Yeah, maybe the film snob in me is coming out a, a little bit here. Um, I mean, 2001, without doubt, is one of the greatest sci-fi films ever made, and it works on so many levels. The thing I was frustrated with this film is... But did it look good, though? Do you think Ad Astra <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> I think Ad Astra is a, is a good film. There's no doubt about that. And it looks stunning. The set design, the cinematography, first rate. But my frustration kind of felt the filmmaker... I don't know what he was trying to do with this film. Was he trying to make a kind of an art house 
science fiction film because it was very slow paced. Mm. It felt to me longer than the two hour duration. Was he trying to make something that worked on kind of a bit more of an intellectual level about kind of isolation, different themes? But then secondly, he had this kind of story that seemed to me to be very, very generic. Not particularly interesting that he was trying to find his, his father who'd been lost for, for years, find out that he was still alive and try and reconnect with him. And I felt the story was a little bit generic. I didn't find it particularly that interesting. And I felt, considering the film had a very good cast and Brad Pitt I thought was very good, I felt Tommy Lee Jones was absolutely wasted. And Liv Tyler, again, did she really need to be in this film? And I kind of felt they could have used a good actor in the, the part, that those parts particularly the Tommy Lee Jones part, I just felt it was just a waste of a, a good talent. Tommy yeah. Lee Jones is a a far better actor than... Than what he's given here. That yeah, minimal... I think... I, I see where you're coming from. I think from my perspective, I think the, the first... Sorry, Pete, I'll clue you in a second. But the um, from my perspective, I think the first half of the film for me was, was hit the nail on the head. I thought the first half of the film was great. And then, I don't know, for me then, it just suddenly started to feel like they were rushing to get to a conclusion. Mm. And for me, I could have done, I would have happily watched another half hour of this if it had added more context to the second half of the film and more context to the story. I just, I have a feeling that somewhere there is a longer cut of this film that the studio has just gone, no, you can't have it, it's three hours, it's got to be two and a half hours. And I want to, and I want to see that cut because I just, it felt like it was rushing to get to the conclusion before the end for me. Pete, sorry to have uh, pushed you out there for so long. What did you think? <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, this is the point in time we talk about a space movie and I need to tell everybody that it's not really about space, right? Because yeah. <laughs> when, when we reviewed Gravity, which is a film that I liked, as I've said many times, a, a great deal and maybe more than most, um, I talked a lot about how that movie is very transparently to me about uh, suffering with depression and depression as a, as a result of loss, in that case, of a child. In this case, um, not that this is the be all end all of my thoughts on the movie, far from it, but the movie to me, as it got towards its conclusion, seemed to lay its cards on the table ever more sort of bluntly and clearly in so much as this is a movie about death and it's a movie about um, acceptance of death. Um, and so in specific moments without talking about exactly what happens towards the very end of the film, there were individual images that that resonated and that that moved me but I don't to, to sort of tack on to what James was talking about I don't know that I got a real sense of James Gray getting a handle on how to deliver the message that maybe he wanted to deliver in a way that was also narratively compulsive and uh, compelling and interesting throughout what is a pretty bloated runtime so I I you know, Paul, um, if not James, you know that I would be the first person to be, as I was when we did the preview of the films coming out in the rest of the year, to be really excited about a movie like this, dealing with big themes, set in space. It's a, it's, you know, a thing that fascinates me anyway. And I guess there was just a frustration there that I felt like what we had was a slightly laboured, slightly ponderous telling of the actual narrative here. And then at the end, we reveal more and more there are big themes in inverted commas at work and yes of course the the you know um 
uh, Apocalypse Now comparison becomes more and more apt, not because of the quality necessarily of the movie, although I, like James and I think yourself, I do think it's a good film, but because of the fact that you've got this, yeah, hunt for a sort of Colonel Kurtz type figure who has apparently sort of gone native in the universe and, you know, is, is doing maybe things that he's not supposed to be doing and the powers that be want him to stop. But, you know, that's not really the point of the film, is it? As I've established at the beginning of this little uh, monologue. So, um, yes, I liked The Lost City of Zed and I felt a similar thing. I felt here's a filmmaker who presents material beautifully, has great control over his camera, has a real uh, sense of framing, but the storytelling part is lacking. Yeah, I no, I, I, I'm totally with you. And I just, I said, I just, by the time, you know, he does eventually find Tommy Lee Jones, it's, it's, you probably work that out, but a spoiler warning anyway. Um, and then you just, for me, you don't spend enough time with the Tommy Lee Jones character. I just, I'm with you there, James. I think it, I think it's wasted. And I just don't think there's, there's enough done with, with the second part of the story for me. And I, and I think it's a shame because I said the, the first half of the film for me was nigh on, genuinely nigh on perfect. Like I was just there. I was just, I've got goosebumps. I'm, I'm so into this at the moment. And then as you, as the film drew to its conclusion, I was just like, well, I want to see, as you say, Pete, like I want to see more about these bigger issues that this film is actually about. I want it, I want it to do more with these. And for me, it didn't. For, for, it might seem like a weird comparison, but as we're throwing them around on this particular <laughs> review, a, a thing that comes to mind, Paul, is, is a film like A Monster Calls. It felt yeah. like that obviously completely different setting and everything, you know, that you're going to see on screen is going to be a lot different. But there you've got a film that gets to its underlying subtext and then really manages to sort of punch you in the gut with it in a way that oh, is cathartic. Yeah. Where, um, I feel I, in pieces. <laughs> where, where I'm, I'm not saying that that's like James Gray's full intention with Ad Astra, but I would say that when you make a movie on this scale, deeming with, dealing with this sort of these lengths of, of time and space and humanity that you've got you know cogs spinning in your head and things that you want to push and I just wish maybe they'd pu been pushed in a more effective way but like I suppose before we whitewash this whole thing with talking about like big themes and failed storytelling you guys were talking about how good it looks and I mean not just the appearance of the thing um, but I suppose the early at least the journey the first half of that journey taking him at least as far as the buggy chase on the moon um, some of that stuff was fantastic, right? Yeah, no, the, the buggy, yeah. buggy chase on the moon was great, and I think when they they established like this near future world where you've got like the so the moon is the moon is disputed territory, so you've got like pirates on the moon, and just like, and then the the, the whole thing about oh we're still like and Brad Pitt's character's kind of he's just he's still very negative about humanity because he's just like oh we're we're on new planets and we're we're still fighting over resources and that kind of thing. I like that setup and I, I really like the, the world that created and it's a little bit depressing because I think there seems to be this thing that's like, oh, if we find another planet, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll just change. We'll, and this kind of film doesn't look at it that way at all. And that world that it creates, I think, is great. And like there's certain areas of Mars that are controlled by certain countries and that kind of thing. And all that world building, I think, is fantastic. Like, that was great. It was certainly it was a world that I was in very intrigued to spend time in, for sure. But that's but that's an important point, I guess. It it almost felt as though, I guess, coming out of the movie, it might have been good to spend more time in that world. I agree. Rather that's, than... that's what I mean. I, I feel that yeah. I feel that there's there's another half an hour to this film that is mm. sitting on the cutting room floor somewhere. I thought um, one of the one of the opening scenes was incredible. The this bit on the radar, mm. um, yeah, when he falls from the the radar. Yeah, that was that was um, fantastic. Yeah, and that sort of had me on the edge of my seat. Um, there's him hanging from the, the structure and being someone who's got a massive fear of heights. I was literally um, <laughs> I can scared, imagine, yeah. Yeah, scared the living daylights out of me. But 
that was part of the sad thing about the film. There were some great set pieces, really interesting sequences, but I think Pete kind of hit the nail on the head. I, I don't know if the filmmaker quite hit home what he was trying to achieve overall. It kind of yeah, almost felt like two different films. Yeah, I would and agree that, with that. That's such a good pull. Like that sequence with the, the the mast structure or whatever at the beginning, it was like this kind of um, dizzying, sort of disorienting. I'm petrified of heights as well. So I felt every bit as bad, I think. And the, the only thing I would say in terms of sort of staging a thing like that is Alfonso Cuaron did such an incredible job with the debris strike sequence at the beginning of Gravity not very many years ago that it's hard for like regular film goers I guess or enthusiasts not to have that sequence in their head when they're seeing a load of sort of debris strike on a structure that's high up or whatever so I had that in my mind but I have to mention at some point in this thing that um, for better or worse and I think worse I actually experienced very much experienced that Astra through the 4DX um, delivery system, uh, which is for people who don't know, and to be honest, I was one of those people until I sat down in my seat pretty much. Uh, 4DX is a thing where your seat can move on a sort of hydraulic system of whatever. Uh, you also get force feedback in your backrest. You get uh, air that can blow at your ankles or in your face from the seat in front. And you also have like a sort of water spray, although I think we only got spritzed one time during this movie. Uh, but what you get is like, it's it could be a whole episode in itself and I'll try and keep it short. But like you get this weird like cognitive dissonance with experiencing that thing in Ad Astra because the filmmakers or whoever puts the thing together have added these uh, motions to the seat both for the um, the things that are happening to the Brad Pitt central character, but also to camera moves. So at points, your seat is connected with the way a camera is sweeping at an angle. And sometimes, most of the time, it's connected with the things that are being experienced in first person by Brad Pitt's character, which I found very different, difficult to sort of marry together as an experience. And the final point about it I would mention is that I think 4DX for me has a fundamental problem and I've gleaned this from seeing one movie with this uh, this treatment in that it is like that mass strike that you uh, brought up, James, you experience all of the sort of traumas or at least an idea of the traumas of that through your own seat and it's really effective. But the problem comes when the director cuts because then physically you still feel discombobulated, you feel a bit dizzy, you feel a bit queasy, you feel a bit weird, but the action can cut, you know, temporally can cut to a sequence in which the characters wouldn't feel any of that discombobulation because we're now with different characters in a different place. I think you're reading that too much work. into what is essentially a cheap money grab for a Cineworld. <laughs> yeah, but Paul, I mean, it, it's it's a thing that's happening in cinema and it's something that we'd have to deal with if we're yeah. talking about, you know, oh, no, cinema I mean, in the modern world, you know? Yeah, no, I'm not I'm not saying they shouldn't talk about it. I just, I, I'm. It has. it's the kind of thing that has literally, I would rather not go to the cinema than experience 4DX. <laughs> yeah, where I yeah, but I mean, it. it's... it's it, it, wouldn't it be a slight dereliction of duty if we just go, oh, here's a new thing. Oh, that's shit. I don't, I'm not interested. I'm not saying don't talk about it. I'm just saying it's it's not for me. I can already tell you that from... But how, from... how do you know it's not for you unless you've actually gone? I feel like you, for this show, as part of your role, you have to go to a 4DX screening of something. Get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> 
that, that non-existent contract obliges you to do it. So. Fine, I'll go and see a 4DX you, film. You work in an actual uh, cinema. Do you have any interest, or even if you don't have any interest in 4DX, do you have feelings about it in terms of the experience of film watching w- with that stuff all added on? I know about it. Um, I've read about it. Um, I know I've heard it's expensive, but it's kind of like, you, you go, if you want a thrill, you go to someone like Alton Towers, don't you? Like, to me, the whole thing of like creating a theme park kind of ride out of a film. It, I don't know. It just, well, it's, yeah, it's I'm, I'm it's with, existed for years as well, right? It like has you, been around like for yeah, a long time. Like a, a theme time, park. Yeah. You used to go to kind of theme parks or fairgrounds, and they'd have that like virtual yeah. reality. They did it in Disney World. There was a Michael Jackson film years ago, Eco, Captain Eco or something like that. That did a very similar yeah. thing. That, yeah, and they that, did the yeah. was it the Terminator Two yeah. ride, which is kind of and at, yeah. like aquariums and yeah. stuff. They'll always have like a deep ocean adventure or whatever like that. So it's not actually a new thing. And I'm not saying I'm I'm far from being a sort of advocate <laughs> of this thing or a big. You've fan got one in your lounge now, haven't you? I think. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just don't have an interest in being sort of like so jaded as we just see a new thing come along and dismiss it out of hand. That's all. Um, but yeah, it, it basically made me feel a bit sick and a bit dizzy. But the parts <laughs> where it worked really great. It's just that almost what you want is to see like a five minute sequence with 4DX separately and then go and watch the whole movie inter- uninterrupted. So in like a theme park movie. ride. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I apologies if I'm come across as jaded, but fine. I'll go and see a 4DX film at some point. Do it if they do ever. It. It's, good, it's yeah. good research. Yeah, I'll right. do it. Bring Can't it. Wait. Come back on the show and yeah, yeah. Bring it back we'll give to Ad Astra. Then we we, we should. Um, this thing feels like we're all kind of leaning into a vaguely negative review on Ad Astra. I would Astra. say that's is unfair. That no, I'd say that's, that's unfair. I didn't, I think the trouble is I was expecting, I was expecting this to be great and I thought it was going to be great until about the, the, the midpoint. So I wouldn't say it was a bad film. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't want this to come across as, as an overtly negative review. I just, my expectation for this was higher um, than what ultimately the film I saw would be where I'd mm. stand. It was good, but not great. If you, um, and James on this one too, if you had uh, this, Gravity and Interstellar, in a three, which is first, which is second, and which is third? I'm not a huge fan of all three, I've got to be honest. Um, <laughs> that makes uh, it tough. Interstellar, this and Gravity, or maybe the other? No, Interstellar, Gravity and this. I'm going to say Interstellar, Ad Astra, and then Gravity, I think. Um, I mean, but yeah, the, the answer is actually gravity interstellar and then this, <laughs> I, but you know, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I, I agree with Paul. I, th- I don't think we're being negative. I think this is a good film, but my, my problem with it, and it, it being a bit of a generalization here, with a lot of mainstream Hollywood films, I think like the thing that lets it down is the writing. I think if you haven't got necessarily a good script. Or you can't just cover a film up with just great visuals all the time. I think you need to to, to have something to say maybe a, a little bit more than just, mm. you know, stunning visuals. Eye, eye candy, as I call it. Yeah, Pete? There's going to be no easy way for me to make my next segue unless I get us all to discuss, first of, uh, or lastly of all, the performance of Brad Pitt, because we can't get to the end of the review without really saying much about that, which is one of the things that's getting all this sort of awards buzz and, and, and a lot of people saying very positive things about Brad Pitt, career best performance, etc. Your guys' opinion, where do you stand, you know, regarding how you think, of the, or park how you think of the movie for one second, 
What did you make of this performance? Is it the best of his career? Were you blown away by him on screen in this? Uh, I I wouldn't say I've seen enough Brad Pitt films to really make a judgment. And he's kind of um, he's an actor that I wouldn't say I particularly like. I'm a big fan of, but I don't dislike him in any way. But in recent years, I think some of his performances have been really good. Um, I thought he was really good in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I thought his performance in that was good. And I thought he he gave a really good performance in this film as well. Yeah, I thought I thought it was a solid performance. I don't think it didn't blow me away. I think I've personally I think I've seen him better than this. Um, but we'll get to that in the next section. Well, we will, <laughs> won't we? It's almost like we were trying to lead into that. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, with you guys, I think it's a good performance. I don't think it's a great performance. And I think that, um, again, it will be touched on in the top five Brad Pitt films coming right up. Uh, but the fact here for me, or the, the limiter here for me on, on this performance, and maybe on this film as a whole, in terms of some of the other stuff we've talked about, is that I find Brad Pitt, at the best of times, to be a little bit blank. And I think that that's a real problem when you're trying to tell a powerful story across, you know, space and, and time and family ties and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think I share the sentiment of the people who are calling to, you know, throw awards in his direction. But it's certainly a good performance. It's a more nuanced performance than than some that he has given in his career. Should we talk about some of those nuanced performances, though, you guys? We're going to be back in just a moment with a very special bonus segment, which will be the top five Brad Pitt performances slash films, right after this. is our top five performance i've gone with top five brad pitt films but if people have gone with performances that's all good so that kind of there's a lot of crossover there so it all works it's all good uh so yeah we're basically going to list down our we'll go it quite quickly um we'll keep it quite snappy but yeah it's 12 12 monkeys my number five there you go we've jumped in right there so my number five is 12 monkeys this is the terry gilliam uh directed 12 monkeys starring bruce willis from way back i'm gonna i'm taking a punt here at 1996 I might have just I might have yeah, just pulled that out of my ass to be honest, time, but that yeah. seems that seems like a good that seems like a good guess. I will fact check that in a minute. Um, yeah, talking about you talk about um, nuanced performances. Uh, Brad Pitt in this is not a nuanced performance. It's a it's actually a very very energetic and hyperactive performance. The type of which we don't often see from Brad Pitt. I think I would say that's that's probably fair to say in Twelve Monkeys. I think the film itself is is a cracking piece of sci-fi. Um, and I, I rewatched it fairly recently and enjoyed it again, to be honest. But Brad Pitt, I think, is is great in this. Um, and this kind of for me is when I started probably started taking him seriously as an actor after I saw him in probably this and another film that's coming off my list. But yeah, I thought um, his performance in Twelve Monkeys was great, and I really liked the film Twelve Monkeys. So that's my number five. Number five for me, uh, I can keep this really brief because it is Ad Astra, the movie that we just talked about. Um, <laughs> basically, yeah, I have leaned a little bit more into Brad Pitt performances just because otherwise I felt like I was having a really hard time cutting down into a top five in terms of just pure film. Yeah. So um, Ad Astra, because as I said previously, I think it is a strong performance. I think there's more nuance than you often get from Brad Pitt performances and I think he does the best job that he could do with the fact that he was cast in that role that doesn't necessarily mean I think that somebody else somebody else couldn't have done a better job but it therefore is enough to make my top five Brad Pitt performances at number five James what have you got at five um the film I really liked going back a few years ago now saw it at the cinema was killing them softly because I found that quite a bleak kind of quite a dark film for you know 
a Brad Pitt movie. Um, thought it was really good. Can't remember awful lot about it, to be honest, which sounds really <laughs> bad. So I probably saw it about 10 years ago. Um, but Pitt ten years ago, Ten years ago, just, uh, well, a little less than 10 years ago, right after the financial crash. It was very much about the financial crash and the yeah. state of the American administration. Very, very much yeah. bothered with, with that stuff. Is James Gandolfini in this as well? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Ben Ben Mendelssohn, who we yeah. mentioned earlier on, who gives a, a really good performance in, yeah, it's in a the film. film yeah. I thought it, I thought it was quite underrated at the time. I remember I think it, it kind of sunk with well, I don't think it got the recognition it deserved, and really I thought Brad Pitt was great in this. Yeah, good chap. Yeah. Good number chat. four. Uh number four from me is let me check my notes. I know already, Fight Club. Um, talk again another probably more hyperactive performance from Brad Pitt than he used to but definitely iconic I think in terms of uh, in terms of that red leather jacket that I then I've had I mean I had one for years after Fight Club and I never admitted that's why it was but let's be honest everyone wanted to be Tyler Durden after Fight Club came out I think it's an iconic performance um, and I think the film we have talked about the film fairly recently I think it it's, doesn't quite hold up as as well as it did on release because you've, you've still got, a, because of some of the six form politics in it, um, it's a bit heavy handed at times, I think. But the Brad Pitt performance in that is, is certainly one of the most iconic, I think, um, without a shadow of a doubt. So Fight Club is my number four. Number four for me is the Brad Pitt performance in The Tree of Life from Terence Malick. This one came out in the year 2010 or 11. <laughs> one of those two. Um <laughs> Yes, uh, I mean, there's the words wishy-washy kind of go through my mind as I plump for number four for this movie. I really like The Tree of Life, so I'm not describing the movie in that way. Uh, I think that (coughs) the performance itself, though, and the reason that it made the list is because basically you get to see Brad Pitt in a role as a father, which is something that, you know, I may be wrong. I don't claim to have an encyclopedic knowledge of all of his back catalogue, but I would like to see more roles in which Brad Pitt plays a father because I think he flourishes in those roles. And I think there's a real humanity to him in The Tree of Life, as you would hope, given the subject matter. So, yeah, Tree of Life, Brad Pitt's performance in that is my number four. James, what have you got? Um, I've gone for David Fincher's Seven, which goes back to mid, late 90s. 95, Seven was. Yeah, Really, really good film at the time. It was, I think, a, quite a big box office success. I thought it was a, just a really good kind of f- murder thriller. Um, really good film. Not seen it for a long, long time. But I'm sure it probably holds the test of, test of time. And Fincher, I always find a, a, good, a good director who's always very consistent. So yeah, seven for me. Good shout, good shout. It might be on my list in a minute, but we shall see. We shall see. Uh, number three for me is Tree of Life, Pete, believe it or not. Um, and do you know why Tree of Life's on that list? Because I also would like to see Brad Pitt play fathers in more films. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good, it's a good uh, yeah, shout. No, I, though, I, I mean... don't disagree with you, to be honest. Um, yeah, and uh, Terence Malick is a director. Like, again, some people love him, some people hate him. I really, really like Tree of Life. It was... Yeah, I'd, I'd really got into it for the entirety of its running time. I thought it was an incredible piece of work. And Brad Pitt was one of the, the highlights in Tree of Life for me. So, yeah, my number three, uh, Tree of Life. Number three for me is, well, with this trio of people on this show, very, very relevant. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I think I like the Brad Pitt performance more than I like the film as a whole. I completely uh, if I, agree if with that statement. Honest, yeah, I, I agree <laughs> with yeah. that as well. <laughs> it, this quite easily could have uh, been higher, I think, on this list. Um, uh, yeah, I think 
we talked about it very recently, so I won't go all into it again. But I just there's there's something about the sort of um, the character seems so much more sort of lived in and um, not re- relatable is the wrong word, but kind of believable um, than I think many other actors in the same role may have been capable of. And so in that particular case, I think it was sort of perfect casting. And I think that, you know, for all of the the quibbles that I may have with Quentin Tarantino, I think he got an in- incredible amount out of Brad Pitt in that role. So yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is my number three. James, what have you got? Okay, so I was going to try um, choose True Romance, but I'm kind of cheating a bit because Pitt's not got a particularly big role in that film, has it? <coughs> So the, f- it, to be fair. the <laughs> film I was going to choose is a really early Brad Pitt film called A River Runs Through It. I've seen this. Well, I say yeah. I've seen it. Well, by I say I've seen it, I mean I've seen it in the shop. Okay. <laughs> so I'll let you speak. <laughs> so yeah, it was, um, I think it released in 1992 and it was kind of the film that put Brad Pitt on the, the map, directed by Robert Redford, who's, oh, wow, okay. you could kind of say was the, the Brad Pitt of the... The 1960s, the the kind of pinup boy, and, and the it's person just, that Brad Pitt looks like in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, pretty much. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you probably say fishing is probably quite a boring subject matter, but yeah, it's a it's a beautiful film, and for an early Brad Pitt performance, Robert Redford as well. Add to that list. It's it's a film worth checking out. It's really good. Nice. I will find it. I won't just look at it in the shop then and go, oh, there's, there's a film. <laughs> um, number two, that brings me to. This is The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Um, just fucking what a great film The Assassination of Jesse James is. Came out in that incredible summer where everyone thought Hollywood was going to start making great films again. You had this, There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men, I think, yeah. came out in the same summer. And we were like, oh, my God, Hollywood's back. This is going to be incredible. Uh, this one, I think, is probably the least well-known of those three, but no less deserving of praise. Um, I think Brad Pitt's great in this. I just think the film's just... It's an incredible... I was going to say revisionist Western. It's not a revisionist Western. It's just a Western. Um, so, yeah, it's just an incredible Western. It's an incredibly shot film. It's incredibly well-made. Everyone, including Brad Pitt, is great in it, and I cannot speak for that film highly enough. And I really want to watch it again now because it's been ages since I've seen it. But it's a fantastic piece of work. Pete? Is, that, is the director of that movie Andrew Dominic? Yes, correct. Yeah, so it shares a director with, with uh, a movie that's been mentioned and that I'm going to mention now. Ah, My number okay, two <laughs> is uh, Kill- Killing Them Softly, which uh, previously mentioned or- already. Uh, this is because the movie, I think, well, I-, I like Andrew Dominic as director. I think that not only um, The Assassination of Jesse James, but also uh, Chopper um, is, you know, just a, a movie oh, that stands a- out for me. directed Chopper, yeah. Yeah, that I go back to and stuff. So, um, I yes, I get it that uh, Killing Them Softly was sort of really heavy-handed in terms of its message, but that's okay sometimes because I think in this case it just it just he was really angry about a, a series of things, Andrew Dominic, and wanted to make his point very clearly and in a sort of um, yeah, sort of pulling no punches fashion. And the thing that stands out most about that movie is when Brad Pitt gets to deliver the line at the very end of the film: uh, "This is not a deal. This is America. Now fucking pay me." And then the <laughs> film ends, and it just. It's one of those like endings to a movie where I walked out of the cinema just smiling involuntarily because uh, I don't know it, it just hit a nerve for me. Killing Themselves is really good, but the performance is also good because you get this Brad Pitt that is sinister and threatening and muscular and troubling and difficult, and that's the side of Brad Pitt that I quite like. That and him being a father, maybe not the two in combination, that might <laughs> might upset me a little bit, but um, yeah, Killing Themselves is my number two. 
James, what do you have at two? Right, so I had a list of films and my phone's decided to die on me. <laughs> I literally feel like I'm dying at this point. Um, I'm going to choose one which is going to divide opinion a bit here. But it was a massive film at the time. Um, I'm going to go for, I don't think it's a particularly strong performance, but it was a huge film at the time. And that's Interview with a Vampire. Uh, yeah. With which was based on the the Anne Rice novel directed by Neil Jordan and co-starring Tom Cruise. And I actually quite enjoyed it at the time. I've not seen the film for a good sort of 20 years, but I thought it was quite an interesting story how Christine Slater, who plays the journalist, interviews this guy who's a vampire in present day and they kind of retell this story of his of his life um so yeah I, i'm gonna go for interview with the vampire i've never seen it pete have you seen interview with the vampire i didn't a know a long it time to, ago i, I didn't know yeah, it was directed by neil been, jordan either so yeah 15 years yeah no idea i've been directed by neil jordan so that's that's intriguing i need to seek that out it's been on my list for a while so yeah uh number one from me is a film that has already come up uh james has mentioned it is seven uh david fincher's seven i just fucking love seven i'll be honest it's one of those films that every time i watch it i just i'm absolutely glued to it i think it's a i think it's absolutely it's kind of it's hot it's one of again fincher is one of those directors that when he's on form is hollywood filmmaking at its finest i think um it's unapologetically brutal um in the in the way that it delivers the some of the, the creativity behind the murders and i think um brad pitt and morgan freeman have have some interesting chemistry together. Those characters play play off each other really well. And I'll never, ever, ever tire of when someone opens a box just trying to do a Brad Pitt impression going, what's in the box? (laughs) And Brad Pitt holds his gun at that. I'm doing a thing where people can't see me at home. The angle at which Brad Pitt holds his gun in seven is effortlessly cool. It's not sideways. It's not front on. It's just only a way I've seen someone hold a gun in Brad Pitt in seven. So uh, yeah, uh, I've got so much love for seven. I think it's a fantastic piece of work. Uh, For me, probably my favourite Fincher film. I think it's nigh on flawless. I think it's superb. So yeah, number one for me, seven. Number one for me, I thought would maybe be number one for you too, Paul, but uh, or, or from James. But for me, it stands out as the Brad Pitt performance that just came to mind when we decided to do this list. And that is uh, Tyler Durden in Fight Club. Because Tyler Durden in Fight Club is sort of this embodiment of toxic masculinity <laughs> at the time. But it was also Brad Pitt being the most admired by, well, the most sought after by women, the most admired by men, shirtless yeah, sure. through almost throughout, glistening with like beaded sweat and delivering all these punchy little epithets to uh, the Ed Norton character about how to be and how to live and how to man up and how to face his problems and how to deal with the things that are presented to him. Um, also, and I want to shamelessly tie this into what I was saying about the movie Ad Astra that we reviewed today. There's only really one thing that kept coming back to me when I was watching that sequence between Tommy Lee Jones and Brad Pitt in Ad Astra, which I can't fully explain because I don't want to spoil the movie, but towards the end of the movie, which is, um, and I've probably recited this to you, I've certainly recited it to my wife many, many times, uh, which is the line in Fight Club where Tyler Durden says, if our fathers are our models for God, then what does that tell us about God? And in the movie Ad Astra, that seems incredibly relevant. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I just found that nobody else at that time in what are we, 99 when Fight yeah, Club came 99, out? Yeah, nobody yeah. else could have done what he did with that character, being both desirable and repellent 
in equal measure at times. If I'd got the top five right for this week, Pete, it, that would be my uh, that would be my number one pit performance for sure. It, for in sure. fairness, in, in fairness to you, Paul, I think I'm the one who sort okay. of done done you dirty because <laughs> right, okay. we we kind of said let's do Brad Pitt movies, and then I just kind of got into a bit of a mess with pulling those apart. So I decided to go for performances. Right. So that's with not you. Me, if I'd gone performances, you, I'd be with you. I'd be with you at um, Tyler Durden being the number one performance for for sure. Just that makes yeah, sense. Just absolutely iconic. James, that leaves you with your number one. Yeah, you're just thinking so of Brad Pitt films now, aren't I've you? Not got, <laughs> I've not gone for performances, to be honest. No, that's I, all I was good. picking that's films, and to be honest, you've name checked pretty much a couple of the ones I was going to choose. So I'm going to go for an early film, and it's, it's not a leading part from Brad Pitt in this one. But I thought Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise was a pretty decent film, um, released back in 1991. Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, film about sort of female empowerment. It was, um, you know, critically acclaimed at the time. But being clever, I'll sort of add that one to the list. No, it's a good shout, and that's. I think that's when that's when like a number of everyone just fell in love with Brad Pitt when he takes his shirt off in yeah. Thelma and Louise. Yeah. Like, like you mentioned, you mentioned obviously this as in Tyler Durden in Fight Club. But I think yeah, when he took his shirt off in Thelma and Louise, a star was born, shall we say? <laughs> like, and and just just uh, tagging onto this list, shouts to the bit in uh, Meet Joe Black where he eats peanut butter with a spoon. Uh, not <laughs> not necessarily saying it's going to trouble any top five list in any topic, but uh, something that that I can never get out of my mind when I think about Brad Bradley Pitt and his career. Um, cool. So yeah, that was fun. That was a fun top five, wasn't it? We'll bring them back. We'll do more top fives. I like yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, sounds um, a good plan. We generally round off the show with a little section that we call credits. And in credits, we give credit to stuff that we think has been good or noteworthy or interesting or recommendable from the last week or so. Does anything stand out for you guys? Have you got anything that you want to mention? I just want to throw a quick plug into the fact that we've talked about it on the show before. Uh, X66 Film Festival is on in Basingstoke this weekend. And yours truly is hosting two blocks of films and running Q&As with filmmakers. So it's the first time I've done it for that film festival. Uh, so I'm very excited to be doing that. So if you are in Basingstoke and want to come to a film festival, the Tumblr's going to be there, the Batmobile. Uh, Lightning McQueen from the Cars is going to be there. So there's going to be film cars there. Uh, it's going to be an ace. It's going to be an ace weekend. The after part will be banging, and I'll be there. So you can meet your, you can meet your favourite host. That's controversial. controversial. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I was trying to think how to respond. Um, yeah, <laughs> I would also be there, except that I am quite literally running away from my responsibilities because the reason that I won't be attending Exit 6 is that this weekend I've got a half marathon to run gulp. Um, I'm not going to give that any credit but what I am going to give credit to is a thing called Podcast Addict. You, madam or mister listening to this, I'm sure are a podcast addict, aren't we all? Um, podcast Addict is just a platform where you can download all your podcasts basically and listen to them and sort them and put them into playlists and stuff like that. The reason why I want to mention it is because previously on this show I gave credit to Pocket Casts and Pocket Casts have shit the bed. I don't know what's happened terrible things uh they've now got a glitchy player they've got all kinds of problems with audio a previously flawless app 
is in the gutter at the moment and I don't really understand why. So I've jumped ship um, like like the rat that I am to uh, Podcast Addict, which I'm finding to be thoroughly enjoyable as a user interface. It's clearly made by a massive nerd who understands how nerdy someone like m- myself might be about podcasts. So the amount of like customization options you've got for, for sorting and dealing with your podcast is fantastic. The search functions are great. All of the like add-ons and extra options that you've got there are amazing. The app itself, Podcast Addict, is free, although you can pay, I think, about three quid to get rid of the ads, which I've done already because they're irritating. Um, I would recommend it if you're at a loss for the best place to sort of play all of your stuff, because I know people are scattered around. Some people use a Spotify, some people use you know, various other platforms, but I would say you're going to be hard pushed to find something that's sort of comprehensively better than Podcast Addict. So get on it if that's your kind of thing. I James, agree. Anything to uh, recommend? Uh, the I'm a bit of a collector, and I noticed from Paul's collection of DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff, it looks like he's in a, a similar vein. Um, the the stuff I kind of wanted to point out was, and I've only come across it in the last couple couple of months, and I think the the releases are great. Is the Criterion collection yeah they've only just come to the uk they're, yeah they've been in the us um, for years now but they've only just started knocking them out in the uk and their their blu-ray editions are beautiful yeah the the presentation <laughs> really interesting releases a lot of films i'd never even come across but yeah they're, they're quite expensive these films but when it comes to kind of dvd re-releases of, of classic and really good films from the US to kind of European film as well, that some of the releases are really, really good and they're worth checking out. Yeah, no, it's a great label. They've got an incredible Godzilla box set coming out, but it's £175, so I don't think I can justify that for a box set for a film, but we'll see. Uh, yeah, but no, incredible label. If you are not, if you haven't, yeah, if you haven't checked out the Criterion editions, you should. And it's about, it's, it's way overdue from coming over here, so it's nice they're actually releasing stuff over here now. So. I think they've got um, a streaming channel as well with yes. the, the releases on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we've basically got you covered because what you need to do after listening to this show then is order some of the Criterion co- uh, collection on Blu-ray, then uh, book yourself a train ticket. On the train journey, listen through Podcast Addict to the Strangers in the Cinema back catalogue of podcasts and get yourself over to Basingstoke for Exit 6 Film Festival. And then, you know, we've got you covered for, what, the next week until we meet up for the next exactly, episode of this exactly. show. Exactly, exactly. We are too good to our listeners. <laughs> I tell you what, let's be so really good time. to the listeners and let's finish up the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah let, let's do that of course we should say you can get in touch with us at strangers cinema is the twitter handle that'll probably be the best place to find us on the social medias although of course there is an instagram and there is a facebook and they're easy to find all of the episodes are archived all the way back to the early days through soundcloud that platform we've got strangers in cinema there as well and then you can obviously um, subscribe to the podcast on whichever player you use whether it be you know uh, at Apple Podcasts, I think it's called now, um, or, you know, your, your Pocket Cast or your, your Podcast Addict or whatever. Um, share it around, please. Support the show. That would be great. And, um, yeah, that's about all from me. Anything else from you, Paul? No. Goodbye. We'll see you next week. See you next week. See you next week. Shut up and sit down.